In this passage in John 15, 15, 23 to 25, our Lord proceeds and continues on his discourse of the persecution that the disciples will indeed face. He has said that starting at verse 18, 15, 18, and this will also continue into chapter 16. The persecution that is inevitable among the disciples of Christ. In the body of Christ, in the church of Christ, the church will face persecution. The world will hate the church and the world will hate Christ and thereby showing that they actually hate God himself. They hate God the Father. No matter how many times they protest, no matter how many times they profess, no matter how many times they proclaim loudly that they love God, if they actually do love God, they will not hate Christ and they will not hate the body of Christ. The two have to match, or all of these have to match. If they profess to love God, God the Father, then they must love Christ and the body of Christ. But when they do the opposite, when they hate the body of Christ, they hate Christ and they hate God the Father. This is the truth that Jesus is emphasizing in our text. He is emphasizing this. He is establishing it in no uncertain terms. This is how we should look at it. Not that we are purposely and deliberately trying to stir up strife and trouble. We're not doing that in that sense. We don't do it because of our sins, and we do not do it because we want to see fireworks. That's not the reason. We proclaim the truth, and we live the truth. And as we do so, if the world rises up against us, then they rise up against us. But that should not stop us from telling the truth and practicing the truth. It should not stop us from doing that. We should understand that this is all in relation to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. It it is more important to belong to the Father and the Son with the Spirit dwelling in us than it is to belong to the world. So don't be discouraged. This is why the Lord anticipates these afflictions and he anticipates them with his disciples before they actually occur. So that when these incidents, these persecutions, when these slanders, when the violence actually does occur against them, they are not shaken in their faith, but they are strengthened, they are buttressed in their faith, they are reminded of the words of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that were spoken beforehand that this is actually how it would come about. And then persevere. Persevere in faith that he who loved us from the beginning will love us until the end and for all eternity. Let's keep that perspective as we study this passage. Verse 23. Verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. He who hates me hates my father also. There is absolutely no other way to interpret this verse but to understand the connection between hatred of Christ and hatred of the Father of Christ. The two go hand in hand. They are inseparable. No one can put a wedge between the Father and the Son. If they hate the Son, they hate the Father. That's inescapable. This is the way it happens. This is why, also, he says in verse 24, they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. If they hate the Son, they hate the Father also. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is one of the emphases of the Apostle John. John 3, 19 to 21. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. 
or condemnation. In this passage, judgment or condemnation may be interchangeable words. And this is the judgment, condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The judgment or condemnation. The light has come into the world, verse 19. Who is this light? It's Christ. Based on John 8, 12 and 9, 5, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. In this way, verse 19, the light has come into the world is Christ himself. He has come into the world. But why is it that men don't go to him or come to the light or believe in the light? Because men love darkness. They love the darkness. They don't want the bright light. They are like nocturnal animals who want to keep their eyes closed in the daytime, but keep their eyes open at night to pounce and prowl for their prey. That's the way men are in darkness. And not only that, what prevents them from approaching the light or going to the light? Their deeds were evil. They themselves are evildoers. They love evil. They love the evil in darkness. And this love of evil prevents the love of good or truth or light. It prevents them. It's always in relation to their evil who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. They know things about God to be true, but they suppress it. They refuse to give up or repent of their evil. And evil is any sin. Evil in the scripture, in many contexts, does not have to do with the grossest or most heinous of sins. It has to do with any sin in many places, such as this verse. People don't like to think that their petty sins, their little sins, their secret sins that nobody else knows, that they are evil, but they are evil. They are evil. And that evil prevents them, their love of that prevents them from coming to Christ. And not only does it prevent them from coming to Christ, verse 20 says, for everyone who does evil hates the light. If they love their evil deeds, they hate Christ. Even if they loudly proclaim, I love Christ. I am a Christian. I believed when I was five or 15 or 25. Many years ago, I believed. No, if they are practicing their evil deeds, they hate Christ. There is no other way to take it. It's very clearly asserted here. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Does not come, does not believe in the light because he's afraid, because he wants to avert this exposure of his deeds, lest his deeds should be exposed. They refuse to believe in Christ. They hate Christ. They refuse to come to him because they don't want their evil deeds to be called evil deeds. They don't want the grossness, the detestableness of their deeds to be manifested, to be in the open. Because when that happens, they must humble themselves. But their pride prevents them from humbling themselves so they don't want their deeds exposed. But the opposite of verse, uh, verse 20 is verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The one who practices the truth does indeed come to the light. He loves the light. He doesn't hate. He loves and believes in the light. And then 
his deeds that brought this change about is in God. God did it, and he is happy to declare God did it in me. God changed me. Yeah, I used to be a wicked man, but I'm not anymore. And not because I'm good, but because God is good. His grace was manifested in me and worked in me to bring this about. This is the way the one who truly loves the light behaves. And the opposite, the hatred is the way the unbelievers behave. So, they will come and love the light. But the relationship of this light to the Father, John 5, John chapter 5. John 5, 22 to 23. John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. God the Father has delivered the act, the privilege, the responsibility of all judgment to his Son. On the day of judgment, who will be seated there on the judgment seat to judge the world? It will be the Son of God, the Son of the Father. But why did the Father give that honorable position to the Son? Because the Father wants verse 23 to happen. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He wants the Son to be honored or glorified, esteemed in the sight of all, as they do the Father. And if that doesn't happen, verse 23, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If we don't honor the Son of God, we don't honor the Father because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4, 15. So if we do not honor the Son of God, and what does it mean to honor? To come to Him, to believe in Him, to love Him, to love the light. If we don't reject our sins, our evil deeds, lest they be exposed, if we don't do that, then we are not honoring the Son and not the Father either because the Father sent the Son for us to honor the Son. We must honor Him and not honor or harbor our evil deeds. Evil deeds must be repented of. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 42. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Jesus tells his accusers, if God were your father, this is the claim everybody makes. Whether in Christianity or outside of Christianity, everybody wants to claim that they know God, God loves them, God is their father, God is their caretaker, God gives them many gifts in life because he actually is in a proper right, loving relationship, redemptive relationship with the people of the world, everywhere, both inside of Christianity and outside of Christianity. Everyone wants to claim that God is their father. In this context, of course, it's the Jews saying this of the God of the Bible. 
But Christ removes that from them. He strips that claim away from them. How does he strip away that claim? Verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. If God were truly your father, you would love me. You wouldn't hate me. You wouldn't reject your, um, me for your sins. You wouldn't try to put me to death. You're, not, you're trying to kill me. You're blaspheming. You're slandering me. You wouldn't do any of these things. You would love me. But they don't love him. They don't love him. And they fail to understand the connection. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. If we remove that claim, if we misunderstand that claim, if we dismiss the claim that the Son descended from heaven to live in this world to be the ultimate apostle and prophet of God, the ultimate messenger of God, if we strip away, if we deny that claim that Christ proceeded forth and came from God, and, and that he did not come on his own initiative, but the Father sent the Son. If we remove that, if we deny that, then we cannot say God is our Father. We don't belong to him. Not at all. In this way, this is the connection. He who hates me hates my Father. 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, 22. 1 John 2, 22 to 24. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. In 22... He asks us who the liar is. Who is the liar? Who is the one who actually dishonors the Son and the Father, who does not love the Son and the Father, who denies the Son and the Father? Who is this one? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. That means this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist denies that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And the Christ is the Son of the Father, the Son of God. They deny that. This is explaining a way in which people hate Christ. They hate Christ and hate the Father, and they are liars by denying the identity of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. When they deny the identity of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of the Father, then they deny the Son, they hate the Son, they dishonor the Son, and they deny the Father. They can't say that the Father dwells in them or the Father loves them or that they belong to the Father. They cannot do that because in 23... Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The Father's favor, the Father's love is not in his possession. But if we confess the Son truthfully, rightfully, biblically, then we have the Father also. And whatever we heard from the beginning must remain in us. And then we will abide in the Son and in the Father. Whatever truth from the beginning must remain in us, must continue in us, then we will be in both the Son and in the Father. Otherwise, we don't have the Son and we don't have the Father. This is one theological aspect. 
But it's not the only theological aspect that assures us or helps us to discern who loves Christ and who hates Christ, who loves the Father and who hates the Father. Another one is in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, 1 to 6. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are told here not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits. In this case, the first or the example, the theological example, is in verses 2 to 3. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This doctrine of the incarnation, that God or the Son of God descended from heaven and took upon human flesh. He took upon a body of flesh and bones to live perfectly, sinlessly, to die for our sins on the cross. That's the reason for the flesh. This is what he's saying here in verse 2. When people deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, when they deny that truth, they don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in Him. They don't believe in Jesus Christ, and they don't believe in God the Father, because it's God the Father who sent Him into the world to take upon flesh. And we might say, well, not many people believe or deny this doctrine. Oh yes, there are many people who deny this doctrine. The Jews deny that the Son, the Christ, came into the world in flesh because they deny the deity of the Son and they say it's incredible to believe that the Son, who possesses a divine nature, came into the world in human flesh. The Jews do that. This is the immediate concern of John the Apostle in 1 John. But it's not only the Jews. Even the Mohammedans, the Muslims, they deny this. They deny that the Son of God is the Son of God. They say God does not have a Son. They wrongly define Son, and then after wrongly defining Son, then they say there is no Son that, the, that God has, God does not have a son. And then he did not come into the world in that form, in flesh. Yes, he did have a body of flesh, but he was not the son of God. Further, they say that Jesus did not die on the cross and that he did not rise from the dead. He didn't die on the cross in his flesh. And remember, what is the purpose of the flesh in 1 John 4, 2? The, the purpose of the flesh is to make a propitiation for our sins, like it says in 4.10. To be the propitiation for our sins, to die for us. But they say, no, he did have flesh, but the purpose of the flesh, propitiation, didn't never, it never occurred. He never actually died. It appeared that he died, People say he died. The apostles preach falsely that historically that he did die. That's what they all say. And if he didn't die, he didn't rise from the dead. And therefore, there's no gospel. There's no salvation. There's no son who possesses deity. There's no 
atonement for our sins by his death on the cross, and there is no life or resurrection to life because he never rose from the dead. That's a complete undermining of the whole gospel in Mohammedanism. But it's not just Mohammedans who deny these truths. Those within Christianity, whether we call them liberals or any other name, whatever, there are many people within Christianity that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ, the atonement, substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, dying as a payment or penalty for our sins if we believe in him, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his second coming, and the day of judgment, heaven and hell. All of these doctrines are interrelated and relate to the flesh. So what is the problem? All of the people who deny these truths are undermining the gospel. They're undermining the gospel from cover to cover in the Bible. That's what they're doing. They're just ditching it all, trashing it all by denying these theological truths. And so when they do so, are they lovers of Christ or haters of Christ? They're haters. They hate Christ. All the while, in their pomp and circumstance, all the while, in their long prayers, in all, all the while, in all that they do and proclaim in the name of Christ, whether it's social work or whatever, they're actually haters of Christ. They don't love him at all. Therefore, it's, it's a hatred that is a serious and pernicious hatred. That's what's happening when people are not understanding the Jesus, the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. But there's another way in which they deny the true Jesus of the Bible and hate him. We've seen they hate him by their evil deeds. We see also that they hate him by what he came to do based on his identity and ministry. We just saw that in 1 John. But we'll also see, we also see that they hate him in reference to his attributes. They hate Christ in reference to his attributes, his virtues, or his characteristics. They hate him in that way. And we may ask, how so? How do they hate him in that way? Well, just pretend that Christ were living among us in our day and time. If Christ were living among us in our day and time. Shall we take some examples from the book of Matthew and just Imagine, if he were living in our midst and he said these things, what would the reaction of the common man be? What would the reaction of the common man be to these statements? Okay, we'll start first in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, verse 17. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the first recorded public words of Jesus Christ in Matthew. The first recorded public words of Jesus Christ. This is likely a summation of his message, succinctly stated, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if we were to hear the first word out of this man, this obscure man from a a town that no one knows around the world, yes, they've heard of Jerusalem, but they've never heard of Nazareth. This man, young man also, 30 years old, from Nazareth, and the first thing he says out of his mouth to the crowds, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who in the world would pay attention to that? They would be incensed. They would be so offended. Who are you to tell me to repent? 
Who are you? And that you know about the kingdom of heaven and I don't? Well, I've been raised in this environment. I've been reading about it. I know the prophets. I know the Old Testament. Who are you to tell me that you know about the kingdom of heaven, but I don't? And I'm not going to enter it unless I repent. Wouldn't people be thoroughly offended by those words? If we're thinking objectively, let's be fair and unbiased. This is the Jesus Christ that people hate. They would hate him today if he were to do that. Further, let's go to chapter 7, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The way of life is narrow and small, and few find it. Few enter into life. Well, to the average ear, listening to these words, wouldn't that be thoroughly offensive? Wouldn't the people who hear that say, I thought God loved us all. I thought we are all his children. I thought we're all going to heaven. I thought we have goodness in us. And I, I'm not a, a serial murderer. So why would Jesus say, and why would he imply, why would he say of me that, or, of, or most of the people in the world, or all the people of the world, that the gate is narrow, and the way is narrow, that... And few are those who find it. Why would he say that? That's not the God I know. That's not the God I worship. That's not the Jesus they told me about. This is the opposite, is it not? It's the opposite here. Thoroughly, utterly offensive to the average person who hears these words. And then he says, broad way, wide way that leads to destruction. It's a broad way that leads to destruction. No, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to be constricted. They don't want to be restricted. They don't want to say, I've got to walk on the straight and narrow path. When they hear the word straight and narrow path that leads to life, they are repulsed by it. They want to walk away from it because they want to have their misconceptions about who God is. Here again, Jesus would be thoroughly and utterly offensive to our modern ears. Or how about Matthew chapter 8? Matthew chapter 8. We have here a Roman centurion, which means that he is a Gentile. He has not been raised in the faith. He has not heard the word for much of his life. Yes, he does hear it at this point, but not for much of his life. He is a stranger. He is a foreigner. He's a Roman, a Gentile. He's not a Jew. The Jews were the privileged people who had the oracles of God. They had the covenants of God. They had the prophets of God. They had the forefathers, the ancestors of the faith, models of the faith. They had everything, right? But this centurion... Because he expresses true faith, this is what Jesus says, Matthew 8.10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Wouldn't the average Jew be offended by that statement? Why? You're telling me those Gentiles, doesn't the Bible call Gentiles dogs? You're saying a dog is better than me? How could you say that? I am a child. I'm a child of God. And those people out there are dogs. 
How could Jesus say, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel, with anyone in Israel. Christ hadn't seen it. That's not the Jesus people would accept today. He would not be acceptable. Because many of us think that we know and that we're just fine the way we are and we have the blessing, the eternal blessings of God among us. Okay, now chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. 10, 34 to 39. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. The words in verse 34 are utterly perplexing to people who have been raised with a misconception of the reason Jesus Christ came into the world. Because especially at Christmas time, we're told, and even unbelievers like to repeat this in songs and otherwise, that there should be peace on earth, goodwill toward men by misquoting or misinterpreting Luke chapter 2, 2 verse 14. By misunderstanding that, they think the Prince of Peace came into the world to give peace to everybody regardless of how they are or what they believe. But that's not the truth. Not only is that not the truth from Luke 2, 14, a distortion of that, but even here. Because they have in their mind fixed that God loves everyone equally, God wants and desires peace to be among everybody, when they come to Matthew 10.34, if they ever come to this verse, if they ever know about it, they don't know what Jesus means here. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. What does he mean in this context? I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Well, what is the sword? The sword is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the Spirit. He came to bring a sword so that when His Word, the Word of Christ, is proclaimed and practiced even in families, what will happen? The family members will be against each other because of the word of Christ being proclaimed and practiced. This is the kind of division or contention or warfare that Jesus came into the world to produce. Yes, if the family members all believe, then there's not going to be this warfare. There will be peace. But that's not the only or exclusive goal in Christ. Yes, if they all believe, or if a few of them believe, or two or three of them believe, and two or three of them do not believe, there's going to be peace among the two or three, but there will be contention between the two or three who have the peace of Christ and the two or three who do not have it. There's going to be contention. This kind of division, setting one against another, so that a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is completely contrary to what people think of Christ today. They think Jesus is so peaceful, Jesus is so loving, Jesus is so uh, gra um, gracious and patient, long-suffering with everybody, that if any kind of division occurs, any time a contention occurs between one family member and another because of the words of Christ, the truth, then there must be something wrong. And the one who is being faithful to Christ must be in the wrong 
because he said something that offended the other. That may be the case because even as believers, we sometimes sin. But in this context, he's not assuming that we're sinning. He's assuming that we're saying faithfully, preaching faithfully, and practicing faithfully his word. And when that happens, then there's going to be division, contention, strife in the household. That's when we have to know, are we going to love Christ or hate Christ? Because if we love our father or or mother more than Christ, we don't love Christ. It's one or the other. It can't be both at the same time. Because if father or mother wants us to do something, wants us to believe something contrary to Christ, then he doesn't love Christ. That's the way he says it in 37 to 39. And it is a matter of life and death. Well, can't we just get along? Do we have to make it such a big deal? Can't we just say it's a trivial matter? Sweep it under the rug. It's just a speck of dust, so just don't worry about it. We'll just sweep it under the rug. It's not a big deal. People want to minimize the gravity of sin, any and every sin. They want to minimize that. But he doesn't permit this here. He says, we're not worthy of him, verse 37. And then in verse 38, if we're not willing to die for him because of this contention, we're not worthy of him in 38. And in 39... We lose our life. We lose our soul. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death, according to verse 39. Eternal life and eternal death. Therefore, we can't deal with it lightly. But the question remains from the beginning. If this Jesus were to say these words in the midst of the modern generation, how many people would joyfully jump up and shout and praise him and say, praise the Lord, as they often do whenever they hear a positive, good word from the preacher. They'll shout hallelujah and praise the Lord. Would they do so if Jesus said this in the many churches of today? No, they would not. There would be silence. There would be silence. You would only hear the crickets. It would be that quiet if Jesus said these words today. Okay, let's get to another passage. Just two more passages in Matthew. Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Our Lord, he is preaching the cross, the cross and the resurrection in verse 21 to his own disciples. But Peter, one of the respected disciples, Peter in 22, remember, he's esteemed and respected and was likely the spokesman of the 12 disciples because often his words are recorded, not because he blurts things all the time, but because probably he was more eloquent and the spokesman of the disciples. So Peter takes him aside, verse 22, to rebuke him. The audacity of Peter. Now, at this point, he's sinning. Though he was respected, now at this point, he's sinning. The audacity of a disciple of Christ to advise Christ by rebuking him. He's rebuking Christ. So we as believers may at times have the audacity, have the temerity to rise up and say to Christ, I don't like that. I don't like what you just said. 
That's a rebuke. That rebuke implies, assumes, that Jesus is wrong and I am right. Jesus is wrong and I am right. If we have that boldness to rebuke Christ, to tell him, I don't like that. And that's what Peter did in 22. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter did not allow the truth of this and the purpose of this to sink into his heart. He did not permit this to happen. He just had a knee-jerk reaction to what Christ said. Correct? Okay. So what should happen? What should happen? If this were to happen today, what would we typically advise people to do? If this were to happen today, what do we typically advise people? When somebody says something that's wrong, that's contrary to Christ, what do we say? We'll say, well, be patient. Should we be patient? Yes. Uh, practice self-control. Should we practice self-control? Yes. There are many circumstances, many occasions when we need to be patient, gentle, kind, practice self-control. But while we preach that, would we also preach that there will be occasions when immediately, instantly, we need to have a rejoinder to the rebuke, an answer to the rebuke. Do we ever say that? Like this? But he turned, Jesus turned, and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And why? You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Would we ever do this? Do we ever make a place for this? Jesus did it and he didn't sin, right? So why don't we repeat this? If Jesus were to do that in our midst, immediately we would say, Jesus, you're impatient. Why did you say that so quickly? And why did you call him Satan? Of all things you called him, you called him Satan. Why didn't you say, get behind me, my friend, get behind, get behind me, my beloved, get behind me, my child. You didn't say anything like that. Why didn't you do that? I'm sure the modern Christian would have said, Jesus, you should have said it in a better way. You should have said it in a more gentle way. This is the Jesus that people hate. He who hates me hates my father also. This is the Jesus they hate. That there is no place for this kind of firm, stern, clear warning to rebuke the rebuke. To deal with the unjust and unloving statement or assertion that is made today. And people will say, well, we can't be like Jesus. Well, didn't Jesus say to be like him? Didn't Jesus say to be like him? And to be like him in every way. Not just to love, but also to hate. Didn't he teach us that in Matthew 10, 34 to 39? That we have to love him more than we love father, mother, son, or daughter, right? He's teaching us in both ways to emulate him. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, the apostle says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And even the apostle Paul at times had occasion, not every time and not willy-nilly, not blurting. The apostle didn't do that and Jesus didn't do that. But there were occasions when the apostle Paul did the same like this such as to Elymas the magician in Acts chapter 13, 4 and following, he said immediately when he was undermining the preaching of the gospel, you son of the devil, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, right? He said that immediately to Elymas, Paul did. 
in the same way Jesus does here. There will be times when we'll have to do that in our love for Christ. This is the Jesus the modern man hates. They will not accept this. Then, one more aspect, or or one more um, passage in Matthew 23. This whole chapter is a denunciation of the false teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, uh, the whole passage is a denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we must ask, these things Jesus says of false teachers, do we speak this way of false teachers? And why is it that we don't speak this way of false teachers? Verse, we'll pick it up at verse 23. And we'll read excerpts. 23:13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Son of hell, twice as much. Those are strong words, stern words. uh, 23.16, Woe to you, blind guides. He calls them blind guides. There's no value in a blind guide. A guide is supposed to guide other people, but he is a worthless guide if he's blind. That's who they are. 17, you fools and blind men. Fools and blind men. Same in 19, you blind men. Verse 24, you blind guides. 26, you blind Pharisee. And then 29 to 36. 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, We would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Who are they in 29? They are hypocrites. In 29 to 30, these are the ones who decorate, build up, fortify the tombs of the prophets and the monuments of the righteous, all the while saying that they are better than their ancestors. Their ancestors put to death the righteous prophets and the righteous men of the past. Their ancestors did it. And while they decorate these tombs and monuments, they say to themselves, they console themselves, they actually deceive themselves, and they say, I wouldn't have done the same thing. There's no way I would have done the same thing. Yes, I know that Ahab and Jezebel, they are my ancestors. I know Ahab and Jezebel, they did those things. I would never be like Ahab and Jezebel. No, no, no. They're dismissive. And Jesus says, no, verse 31, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You're no different than those unbelieving and wicked, idolatrous forefathers. And after saying that, after saying, your nature is the same as their nature, though you boast that you're not the same as they He doesn't say, repent. I really love you and care for you. I want you to be saved. He doesn't say that. Not in this occasion. 
What does he say in 32? Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. What's he saying there? Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Their guilt had a measurement. It rose up in the container. And he's saying, you do the same. Go ahead. Keep doing it. He doesn't tell them to stop doing it. He tells them to keep doing it. Can you imagine if Jesus were to say that today? How many people would utterly hate him for saying that? And then 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. More names. More names that he used to describe their true character. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? That question, rhetorical question, is not meant to be answered in that, well, let me explain to you. Let me back off these statements. Let me back off all of these allegations against you. And let me explain. You know, God is our creator. He created the world. And God actually sent me into the world to die for sinners. If only you would believe and repent. He doesn't pause for any of that. He does not give them any consolation, no comfort, nothing. He tells them there is no escape. This is what the question means. There is no escape, no escape of the sentence of hell. They will be punished in hell. This is the Jesus they hated and the modern man still hates. And then he heaps guilt on them in 34 to 36. I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Repentant scribes, believing scribes, he means here. So he will send more of these righteous men to them, and they will persecute and murder them. And then 35, all the guilt will fall on them. He's doing it on purpose. Verse 35 says, that upon you, in order that or so that upon you may fall all the guilt of all the righteous blood. Now, where in the world is this Jesus Christ preached today? These are not exaggerations of his words. These are his words. We just read them and emphasized some of these words. They're right here in the Bible, in the New Testament. This is the Jesus that is hated. To the extent, now we proceed to our final point. To the extent that we who truly belong to him, the church of Christ, the disciples of Christ, the body of Christ, he is the head and we are the body, correct? Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. He is the head and we are the body. 1 Corinthians 12, the whole chapter. He is the head and we are the body. And we are all attached to him, the head. To the extent that we conduct our life in godliness, living a quiet, simple, peaceful life, trying to practice righteousness individually and helping our marriages, helping our families, helping our friends to do the same, working hard, minding our own business, we're not out in the streets. We're not committing arson and felonies on the street. We're not doing anything like that. To the extent that we are following Christ faithfully, preaching Him accurately and practicing His Word accurately, the world will hate us. And when they hate us, it's not only or merely us they hate. They hate Christ and they hate the Father. He who hates me hates my father also, right? So, is it true? Is it true that when they hate us, they hate the son and the father? Psalm 83. Psalm 83. Psalm 83, 1 to 8. The whole psalm is relevant to the subject from beginning to end, but to the point that when they hate us, do they hate God? And this psalm will make the point in verses 1 to 8. Psalm 83, 1 
to 8. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And, O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come, and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you do they make a covenant. And then he identifies who they are. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. He specifies who the haters are. Their uproar and their hatred, he says, or they say in verse 2, those who hate you. Verse 5, against you do they make a covenant. It's ultimately against God, but their means of expressing their hatred of God is through the people of God, against the people of God. Because they cannot reach up into heaven with their weapons. They cannot reach into heaven with their words. They can't do anything like that, correct? In order to harm God, the invisible God who is spirit, they can't do that. But when they see us, notice, it says in verse 3, they make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They detest us. They hate us so much. They say, verse 4, they have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. They want to obliterate us. They hate the words we speak and they hate the things we do. That's how much they hate or despise everything about us. They would love to get rid of us, that we are not in their presence anymore. They take it out on us. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And we read verses 1 and following. We'll read 1 to 6. Acts 9, 1 to 6. This is an account of the conversion of Saul. Saul who became Paul. Also known as Paul. The Paul the Apostle. Verse 1, 9, 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, He went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Verse 1 says that Saul, before his conversion, is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The disciples. And these disciples are... In verse 2, men and women. No mercy on the women, even for Saul, the hater, before his conversion. No mercy. Men and women. He was against both. But when he took out his hatred on the disciples, on the men and women, how does Jesus tell him that he's doing so? Verses 4 and 5. Why are you persecuting me? 
And five, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The head, Christ, and we are his body. When Saul was persecuting the church, the disciples, the body of Christ, he was harming the body whose head is Christ. And this is the way it typically happens. Rarely will they merely just write a book. Merely, uh, or they might, they, they won't just merely or exclusively just say words in the air. The people who hate Christ and hate the Father, they have to. They have to take it out on the people that they actually see, the body of Christ, to express or to exert their hatred of Christ and God. Even while they claim to know Christ and to know God the Father. This is how it happens. So then, may we, may we not be discouraged by this. May we understand this connection. And understand the reality that people must understand and make this distinction. If they love God or love Christ, then they will love his people. When they don't express true love, biblically explained, then they hate the Father, they hate the Son, and they hate those who belong to the Son, the church, the true church. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.